Section 4 of The Exploits and Triumphs in Europe of Paul Morphy, the Chess Champion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Exploits and Triumphs in Europe of Paul Morphy, the Chess Champion by Frederick Milnes Edge Chapter 4. Part 1. Chess in England Most of us know how Box, when called upon by Cox, to give explanations of the improper attentions he, Box, was paying to C's wife, hums and haws and begins, toward the close of the sixteenth century, when Cox very properly cries out, what the deuce has the sixteenth century to do with my wife? Many of my readers may, like Cox, want to know what a great deal of my book contains has to do with Paul Morphy. All I have to say in reply is, if you don't like it, skip it, more especially the following thirty pages, which nevertheless will be interesting to all chess players. Chess seems to have first acquired social importance in England during Philidor's residence in that country. Judging from the number of titled names attached to his work as subscribers, the British aristocracy were, in this time, much given to the game. But, nos savants change tout cela. And the English nobility nowadays, with but a few notable exceptions, confined their abilities to tattersales and aunt sally what a fall was there my countrymen surely the king of games which has enlisted among its votaries such names as that of the victor of culloden and his rival marichel sax without enumerating those of all the greatest warriors of many centuries might still offer inducements to their comparatively unknown descendants we have thousands of men, composing the British aristocracy, at a loss to get rid of their time, sauntering down to their clubs at midday, listlessly turning over the leaves of magazines and reviews, until their dinner hour arrives. Why, in the name of common sense, do not these men learn something of chess, and thus provide themselves with a pastime, which not merely hastens time's chariot wheels, but quickens the intellect? One gets tired of billiards, cards, horse-racing, etc., but your chess-player becomes more enamoured of his game the more he knows of it. It may have been that gentlemen and nobles affixed their names to Philidor's book, out of compliment or charity, but it is doubtful whether their descendants would now do so, even from those considerations. Must we measure the capacity of dukes and lords by that intellectual standard, Aunt Sally? Philidor certainly did much for chess, particularly in England. He possessed peculiar advantages for so doing. In the first place, he had true talent. His powers for playing blindfold excited extraordinary interest at the time. Not merely among chess players, but especially with the titled crowd. His political antecedents increased the general interest, and, last and best of all, he was a foreigner. If Philidor had been an Englishman, he would hardly have sold a copy of his book. Philidor organized a chess club in London, which met at Parslow's Coffee House, St. James Street. 
At the present day little is known of that early association, and we cannot even tell whether the members were numerous. After his death, chess seems to have languished. Parslow's club dragged on its existence during some years, dying from inanition about 1825. The London Chess Club, first organized in 1807, kept alive the sacred fire, but that was the only community in England during the first quarter of this century where the game was publicly played. Some years after the establishment of the London, the Edinburgh Chess Club started into existence. In 1833, a great impetus was given to the game by the commencement of a weekly chess article in the columns of Bell's Life in London. Amateurs now had an organ which could record their achievements. Men hitherto unknown beyond their private circles felt that the opportunity was afforded them to become famous throughout the country, and provincial clubs started up here and there. Chess players cannot but regard that paper as a very nursing mother for Caissa, and certainly never hear it mentioned, but their thoughts revert to the veteran, George Walker. I once heard that gentleman relate the following anecdote as a proof of how little was known of chess, in England, previous to the year 1833. Travelling towards the north, somewhere about that period, he put up one night at a hotel in Stratford-upon-Avon. Now any man with music or poetry in his soul would, under such circumstances, wander towards the home of Shakespeare, or to his last resting-place, provided always that fear of rheumatism or influenza did not render him regardful of the rain, which then fell like cats and dogs. How to pass the evening was the question. Only one other traveller in the coffee-room, and he as uncommunicative as Englishmen proverbially are. Mr. Walker did not feel like going to bed at seven o'clock in the evening, and the idea of throwing out a feeler struck him as interesting. Did Traveller play chess? Traveller did. Would he have a game? Yes, he would. The waiter is thereupon summoned, and ordered to bring a set of chessmen. Waiter, strongly suspicious that Mr. Walker means skittles, finally awaked to consciousness, and, with a smile of triumph, produces a backgammon board. The very idea of an opponent obliterated all fear of the weather in Mr. Walker's breast, and he sallied forth in quest of the desired pieces. Toy shops, libraries, etc., were entered, but the proprietors scarcely understood what was asked of them, and Mr. W. finally returned to the inn to dispatch boots to the solicitor, doctor, and neighboring gentry, but all to no purpose. Thereupon mine host suggested a note to the parson, but that individual, having just rendered himself famous for all time by cutting down Shakespeare's mulberry tree, Mr. Walker replied that such a man could not possibly know anything of the game, and it would be useless to send to him. So the two travellers were forced to console themselves with the intricacies of draughts. After the death of Philidor, the strongest players were Surratt, de Bourblanc, Lewis, and Parkinson. Surratt and Mr. Lewis may be looked upon as chess professors. We all know the story of the former's playing with the great Napoleon, and the struggle between pride and courtesy. Very silly courtesy, indeed. Finally overcome by Surratt's drawing every game. This could not have been a satisfactory result to the little corporal, for he never seemed partial to leave things in statu quo antebellum. Surratt was a schoolmaster. Parkinson, an architect, 
and Mr. Lewis commenced life as a merchant's clerk, and eventually embarked in the manufacture of pianofortes. This information has nothing whatever to do with the reputation of the above gentlemen as successors of Philidor, and I only mention it because chess players, like other men, are not adverse to hearing what does not concern them. The continental blockade and long wars with Napoleon isolated England from the rest of the world, and completed the decay and fall of chess for a time. But the game did not languish in France and Germany. About 1820, the Holy Alliance of Sovereigns against the people began playing its pranks, proscribed fugitives, martyrs to liberty, soi de sant, and otherwise, came over to England in shoals, and among them were to be found thorough adepts in the mysteries of chess. These refugees rekindled the fire in Britain. They brought with them new and unknown German and Italian works, and made Englishmen acquainted with far more extended information than could be found in Philidor's meagre work. Before we enter on the new era of chess, I may add for the benefit of such of my readers as are not up in its history, that Lewis was a pupil of Sarratt, and MacDonald the pupil of Lewis. It is difficult from the paucity of existing data to judge of the strength of former players as compared with modern examples. Mr. Lewis has been accustomed at one time to give MacDonald pawn and two, but when these odds became too heavy he declined playing longer, and may be considered to have retired from the arena. Mr. Walker thinks that, in their best play, Mr. Surratt and Lewis were a pawn below Murphy and he ranks the latter with Labourdonnais and MacDonnell, stating his belief that the two latter would have played up to a much higher standard if provoked by defeat. For my own part, I think it is indisputable that the reputation of these two players is, at this day, entirely based on their eighty published games, and when Herr Lowenthal's much-looked-for collection of Morphy's contests is published, we shall then be enabled to judge of the American strength, as compared with those celebrated masters. The influx of foreigners into London was introductory to the establishment of numerous chess circles in different coffee-houses. Hundreds of exiled patriots, bearded Poles and Italians, congregated together to smoke and play chess, and soon infused a general passion for the game amongst the Londoners. The first room specially devoted to chess, of which we have any account, was one opened by Mr. Glidden, and this led to the establishment of the London Chess Divan. The London Chess Divan What chess player has not heard of the far-famed resort of the devotees of Caissa? The Café de la Regenza may be the mecca of chess, but the divan is indisputably its medina. Chess clubs have risen and fallen, and the fortunes of the survivors have waxed and waned, but the divan flourishes in springtide glory, the Forum Romanum, for players of every clime and strength. Now my readers must not suppose that I am about to attempt a history of the Divan in the Strand, as the Cockneys call it, for I should then have to write the history of modern European chess. I merely intend a sketch, from which they will learn with how much reverence that classic spot is to be regarded. Somewhere about the year 1820, a tobacconist, named Glidden, opened a room in the rear of his shop, King Street, Covent Garden, which he fitted up in Oriental style, and supplied with papers, chess periodicals, and chess boards, calling the establishment Glidden's Divan. Among his patrons was a Mr. Bernhard Rees, 
who soon perceived that there was room in London for a similar undertaking on a much larger scale. He accordingly opened a grand chess saloon in the building now occupied by the Divan. This was so far back as 1828. It was, at first, on the ground floor, in the room known as Simpson's Restaurant, but when Mr. Rees gave up the establishment to his brother, the present proprietor, in 1836 that gentleman transferred the Divan to the vast saloon upstairs. In 1838, Mr. Rees, number two, found the Westminster Chess Club suffering from paralysis, its sinews of war being grievously affected. He purchased the good will and furniture of the club, giving the members private rooms on the first floor of his house for their exclusive use. The boards and men now in use at the Divan were made expressly for the Westminster Club when first established. The members in their new locale soon found that whilst some twenty boards would be going in the public room, the game languished with them, and in the course of two years the club broke up and became absorbed in the Divan. This will invariably be the case when a private and exclusive chess association holds its meetings contiguous to a public resort devoted to the same game. During the past year, the Paris Cercle des Echecs, which met in rooms over the Café de la Regenza, found that the influence of the arena downstairs was too great for them, and they broke up their meetings, and are now found to be en masse in the public café. In 1842, Mr. Rees invited Labourdonnais to come over from Paris, and play exclusively at the Divan, which offer that great master accepted. But his constitution was already shattered, and the malady which eventually carried him off interfered with his devoting much time to chess, and no matches of importance were played by him during the period. It was next door to the Divan, at number six Beaufort Buildings, in rooms taken for him by Mr. Rees, that Labourdonnais finally succumbed to that terrible antagonist who, whatever the opening may be, brings the game of life to one inevitable ending. Death. Who, known to fame in chess during the past quarter of a century, has not assisted in making the divan classic ground? Of bygone paladins we might instance Papard, Fraser, Zen, Daniels, Alexander, Williams, Perigal, and a host of others, never for a moment forgetting Labourdonnais and Kieser Ditsky. The veterans Lewis and Walker made it a place of constant resort before they withdrew from the chess arena. In the Divan, Staunton arose from a night player to a first-rate. St. Arnaud, Anderson, Harwitz, Horwitz, Kling, in fact all the great living celebrities, make it their house of call while in London, whilst the brilliant corps d'élite, composing the phalanx of English players, Lowenthal, Bowden, Barnes, Bird, Lowell, Falkbeer, Wormold, Campbell, Zydogorsky, Bryan, and etc., etc., may frequently be found there, ready to meet all antagonists. When Mr. Buckle casts a longing, lingering look behind at his first love, he offers homage to Caissa at the Divan. But we must stop, or we shall fain run through the whole list of living players. In the room are busts of Louis, Philidor, Labourdonnais, and other Vieux de la Vielle, and the library is replete with all the chief works on chess. From noon to midnight, players of every shade of strength are to be met with. Amateurs who learned the moves last week, professors who analyze openings, 
adepts inventing new defenses, and editors who prove satisfactorily that the winner ought to have lost and the vanquished to have gained. Salam to the Divan! May it live a thousand years! The Divan has certainly done much to spread a liking for the game amongst the masses, but at the same time it has somewhat interfered with the formation of a flourishing West End chess club. There is no city in the world in which so much chess is played as London, and the British metropolis should certainly show, at least, one club numbering from five hundred to a thousand members. Club life is an institution peculiar to Englishmen. Devens, even when so well managed as Rees, partake rather of the Gaelic element, being of the genus café. Your aristocratic Briton frequents not the public saloon, preferring the otium cum dignitate of the private club. I am aware that chess in England is not fostered by the upper ranks of society. Its amateurs are to be found mainly in the middle classes. Shopmen, clerks, professors of the arts, literary men, and etc., form its ranks and file. The majority of these, I speak of them as Englishmen, object to a place of public resort from various reasons. Smoking displeases some, and smoking is part and parcel of a divan. The automaton itself could not get on without its chibuk. All the advantages and none of the drawbacks of a public hall are to be obtained at a club, especially when, as at the St. George's, one room is set apart for smoking. Surely the late impulse given to chess by Paul Morphy's European feats will increase the members of these chess associations, which are incontestably the best schools for progress in the game. About the year 1824, three or four young gentlemen, who had recently learned chess, or rather the mechanical part of it, and had been playing a good deal together, made vain inquiries as to the existence of a chess club at the west end of London, being desirous of showing off their abilities to new advantage. The foremost of these ambitious juveniles was Mr. George Walker, the eminent chess writer, and an author, too, whose never-failing bon homier is worthy of La Fontaine. Finding that westward the star of the empire, and of chess had not, as yet, begun to take its way, they resolved to have a club of their own. Philidor's club could not be said to exist. The flame was flickering in some obscure corner, and the last member was preparing to leave. But the sacred fire was not to die out. George Walker and his fellow youngsters built an altar for it at the Percy Coffee House in Rathbone Place, Oxford Street, and blew the flame into a perfect blaze. Percy's Coffee House was then a first-rate hotel. Belgravia, Brompton, Pimlico, were cornfields and market gardens, and the aristocracy had not emigrated from the neighborhood of Oxford Street. The denizens of that ilk might be supposed to find some leisure for the enjoyment of such a pastime as chess, and Walker and company soon enlisted upwards of a score of recruits. Night after night the members played what they in their innocence called chess, finishing the Monday evening with a supper, after which harmony and the flowing bowl prevailed. Things went on swimmingly in this mutual admiration society, until one of the members, Mr. Perrier, of the War Office, upset the status quo by bringing into their midst Mr. Murphy, the celebrated ivory miniature painter and the father of Mrs. Jamieson, the authoress. Dire was the result. Mr. Murphy proved a very Trojan horse in this West End ilium. 
for, as Mr. Walker says, he entirely dispelled the illusion of the bold Percys that they had been playing chess. He gave them one and all a night, essayed the gambit on every occasion, and not one of the young gentlemen could make a stand against him. As though not sufficiently humiliated, Mr. Murphy introduced Mr. Lewis to them, and the newcomer completed their bewilderment by giving them the rook and sweeping them clean off the board. But with such a master, the Percys, by dint of diligent study and practice, rapidly improved, and it was suggested to Mr. Lewis that he should open a private club at his own house. After a short delay this was accomplished, and nearly all the members joined Mr. Lewis, when he opened subscription rooms in St. Martin's Lane, classic ground surely, for a former chess club had lived and died at Slaughter's Coffee House hard by. Mr. Lewis collected quite a number of players around him, and was in fair way to find his enterprise profitable, but the most prominent members demurred to his not playing with them so much as they desired, more especially as Mr. Lewis did not appear to regard the institution as a free school for the inculcation of chess. The best of the young amateurs were Misters Walker, Brand, Mercier, and MacDonald. The last, the best of the lot. MacDonald received from Mr. Lewis the odds of pawn in two moves, but when he had fairly surmounted that advantage and could win every game, his antagonist declined playing on even terms, much to MacDonald's disappointment. This, however, appears to be the usual course with leading chess players. Deschapelles' conduct in regard to Labourdonnais being a notable example of the fact. There are peculiar idiosyncrasies in chess human nature, as, for instance, the remarkable reserve and don't-come-nigh-me feeling with which leading amateurs treat each other. Go into any public or private chess association, and you will find that the superior craft steer clear of each other as a general thing reserving their antagonism for matches few and far between. The club subsequently removed to the bottom of St. Martin's Lane, and shortly broke up, MacDonald and others returning to the London club, whence they had migrated. A futile attempt was afterwards made to establish a grand aristocratic silk and satin club in Waterloo Place, the door of admission to which could only be opened with a golden key of ten guineas. Here lots of everything could be found except chess and no wonder, for the game does not find supporters, to any extent, among the rich, depending mainly upon individuals to whom ten guineas are a consideration. The club expired in twelve months. Caissa thus lost her last foothold at the West End, and Mr. Lewis henceforth virtually abandoned the practice of chess. The question has frequently been asked whether and how Mr. Lewis played Labourdonnais. They played together on three different occasions, in all seven games, of which Labourdonnais won five and lost two. The first time they met was at the house of Mr. Domit, Honourable Secretary of the London Club, and two Algier gambits were played, each winning one, as they had just done their duty to a very good dinner, and society was then divided into two, three, and four bottlemen, Labourdonnais remarked, The victory is not likely to be gained by the better player, but by him who carries his wine best. This reminds me of a bon mot of Mr. Bowden. Somebody remarked in his presence that two amateurs, whose names to mention decency forbids, were both drunk, though engaged in a match game. He replied, Then the best player will win. 
After the conclusion of the two games, Messrs. Mercier, Bonfil, and Domit, particular friends of the English player, challenged Labourdonnais to play Mr. Lewis a match of twenty-five games at five pounds a game. This was rather too bad, considering that Labourdonnais, to use his own words, was without a friend or a shilling in a foreign country. But he laughed the challenge away as a joke, in his own witty manner, by saying that, in such case, he must be the best player who could offer to play for the highest stake. A reply which so pleased a gentleman present, Mr. Brand, that he cried out, Labourdonnais shall play Lewis a match of twenty-five games at ten pounds a game, and I will find his stakes. It is stated that Mr. Brand evinced considerable ill-feeling towards Mr. Lewis at the time, in consequence of the latter's preferring a move recommended by Mr. Mercier in a match then pending between London and Edinburgh clubs, to one proposed by himself, and perhaps this was the reason for his offering to back the Frenchman against his own countrymen. But Mr. Lewis's friends did not accept the challenge, and the two champions confined their contests to five off-hand games, which were played at the residences of Messrs. Bonfil and Mercier, Lewis winning one and Labourdonnais four, so that the final result was Labourdonnais five, Lewis two, drawn zero. The above occurrences took place on the occasion of Labourdonnais's first visit to London, many years before his famous encounters with MacDonald. About the year 1830, a gentleman of great parts and education, named Hutman, finding his share of the world's loaves and fishes not precisely what he could wish, opened a coffee-house in Covent Garden. His patrons belonged to what society calls the upper classes, for his prices were high and his refreshments first-rate, two considerable attractions to men of means. Among the frequenters of the rooms were Mr. Henry Russell, the since-celebrated singer, Captain Medwin, Byron's medium, and Mr. Mackay, now Dr. Charles Mackay, the poet. Dr. Mackay was in New York during the chess tournament, and visited the rooms on that occasion, but we were then unaware of his early acquaintance with the game. At Hutman's coffee-house, the habitués were gentlemen in quest of quietness, men of calm, reflective turn, given to chit-chat in nooks and corners, smoking a genuine Havana over a cup of unquestionable mocha, and reading that everlasting refuge for an Englishman, the Times. Just the atmosphere for a chessboard, and two or three were accordingly introduced. Now you can never get chessboards into any establishment without the fact becoming immediately known amongst amateurs. Mr. George Walker soon got wind of the arrangement, and forthwith reconnoitred the lines. The result of his observation was that he suggested the formation of a chess club in the first-floor rooms, and to this Mr. Hutman assented. Mr. Walker forthwith began drumming about for recruits. Electing himself secretary, pro tem, he drew up a set of rules, and got out printed circulars, and it was not his fault if any person with whom he claimed even bowing acquaintance escaped from the meshes of the proposed club. Within a few days he had canvassed all his earliest chess friends, and had rallied round the standard of Caissa, between twenty and thirty defenders. It was resolved to style the association the Westminster Club, and Captain Medwin was elected the first president. End of Section 4